On this week's podcast, we have Rachel Baumel. Rachel is a breast cancer survivor whose goal is to help other women with their battle to fight cancer. In 2018, she had four surgeries for breast cancer and ovary removal. She created a pillow system to make herself more comfortable while sleeping on her back. She had to find pillows and put them together to make a comfy and cozy cocoon. Her husband called it the life raft. She started lending her pillow system out to women in their support group who also had surgery. They loved it and said it was truly helped them sleep after their surgeries. She realized that people could really benefit from this pillow system after their surgeries. As we all know, sleeping is a critical part of healing. This pillow system helps you sleep and therefore heal. A little more about her. She's 48 years old with two beautiful and amazing daughters and a loving and supportive husband. They have two great dogs, Cal and Sunny. She recently retired from being a family law attorney mediator where she helped people work through conflict. She's also a serial entrepreneur. She gets a lot of energy from starting projects and businesses and meeting a need in the community. Helping people is extremely important to her. She truly hopes that the Sleep Again pillows can help people sleep again. This week's podcast is brought to you by Mama Bird Interviews. My name is Daniela Delacruz, and I help Dr. Clark run Mama Bird. Our interviews are such a great gift to your families as we capture family stories and wisdom that all too often get lost. Our most popular interviews are graduating seniors, but we interview a lot of grandparents, parents, and engaged couples as well, all for the great cause of empowering and opening doors for me and my peers. I know so many amazing young women from Umbello, and the more interviews we sell, the more women we can impact. On top of this, Dr. Clark has been an amazing mentor and boss to us, and supporting his work only makes the world a better place. Thank you, and enjoy another amazing podcast. Okay. Hello, Rachel. I am um, so happy to have you join me today and learn about you. We don't know each other at all. So this is exciting for me because um, I enjoy learning about new people and having first kind of time conversations. And so I'm excited to learn about you. Um, I read your bio before, so you are very accomplished in so many ways. And where I kind of want to start with this is where you're at currently um, and talking about a little bit about your cancer journey and then also how it led to your entrepreneurial um, journey as well. Great. That sounds good. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Okay. Well, uh, do you want me to start with my diagnosis? Would that be a good place to start? Okay. So in 2000, in September of 2017, I was diagnosed with breast cancer after getting a mammogram. I did a 3D mammogram, which I would highly recommend anyone getting their yearly mammogram should get a 3D because I don't think they would have found it without that. Um, I was called back. So I was asked to go back for a follow-up mammogram. And when I went back, the ultrasound or the technician saw something and asked that we go and do an ultrasound. So we went and did an ultrasound. And while we were in there uh, having that being done, the technician again saw something and went to get the radiologist. The radiologist came in and diagnosed me on the spot. So I was diagnosed without my husband there and without any support and without any idea this was going to happen. Uh, it was not a good <laughs> moment. I was bawling in the parking lot of Rose, uh, you know, Rose Hospital in that parking lot between the two founders' buildings. And I went home. I just remember that week being kind of a mess with no information, no knowledge of how bad it was, if I need chemo or radiation, anything. 
And I was really fortunate because they caught it early and uh, it was not that aggressive. So I was able to actually have surgery and not have chemo or radiation. I had surgery November of 2017, and that was my double mastectomy. And then I had reconstruction in March of 2018 and July of 2018. And then in December of 2018, I had my right ovary removed because I had a cyst that was growing and it was not cancerous, but I just didn't want to chance it given my history with cancer. So that was a year of surgery. So with that, one thing that I'm very ignorant on, um, and which is which is um, a privileged thing, is cancer in general. Did you have the option to not have the mastectomy? Is that something that was your choice? How does that process work? Thank you for asking that, because a lot of people don't realize I was being told I should only have a lumpectomy. And I knew myself well enough to know that I could not live comfortably without having the double mastectomy. I needed to know that the cancer was gone a hundred percent. And the other thing that people should hear me say is that they found abnormal cells in my left breast after, after the double mastectomy, they have to dissect, literally cut open <laughs> you both of your breasts and slice it and look at every cell pretty much. And they found abnormal cells in my, in my other breast. If I hadn't had the double mastectomy, there's no way I would have, I would have known that. So, well, okay. Yeah, that is, that is good to know. And so then, and I think that that's something that I don't live by enough is the peace of mind of having things. I think money is a huge part of that, or that you're thinking your money needs to always be working for you in a certain way or whatever it is, but the peace of mind of knowing you have it in certain places is, is you know, has more value in, in the life sense. And I'm sure like what you're going through is that same way that you're, the peace of mind was obviously worth it for you. And I'm sure it was great because then you would got be verified by the science part of it. Um, were you, when you're making those type of decisions, you're still very young, when you're making those type of decisions, was it a, was it a quick one for you or was that kind of something difficult that you struggled through? I always knew weirdly, if I ever had breast cancer, I would get a double mastectomy. It was something I knew. And I never obviously could predict that I would get breast cancer, but that choice was, was made long ago. Just the thought of breast cancer, I knew I would have a double mastectomy. Before we move on from this, as far as women in general, in your experience, getting checked early, getting checked, like what, what do you wish you would have done anything differently previously before that? Or when you've learned from other people what they have or haven't done, other recommendations besides the 3D option? The thing I will say that I have learned in my journey since being diagnosed and, you know, all these years, it's been almost, it's been five years since my diagnosis. Uh, is that I wish I had a better work-life balance and I wish I wouldn't have put so much pressure on myself to be everything to everybody. I always had multiple jobs. I had, I always worked multiple businesses. I never did one thing. I did, I, for, at the time I was diagnosed, I was running two preschools. I was mediating family law full-time and I was primary for our children because my husband's one job, and I'm not saying this with any, <laughs> I'm not saying this with anything but love in my heart. His one job had him at capacity, and he would tell me I'm at capacity. So I took on 
everything else and the stress and the anxiety and the everything that goes along with running two preschools, one mediation practice and being primary on the kids that took its toll on me mentally and physically. And I do 100% believe that the stress of that was a factor in breast cancer because I had a hormonal breast cancer. It was very high in estrogen and progesterone, which means that my body was off. It was just not hormonally balanced. Okay. I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to go back before it. Um, how the hell do you do that? How do you, especially as women, and one of the reasons that I want to do this podcast is just to show women how um, strong they are and see it in each other. And, and my wife's the same way is she can do just a million things and has done a million things and it's societal and it's pushed on her, certainly that she's that way, but obviously that fire makes her great in that capacity. Is it feasible for you to go back in time and, and would it be feasible for you not to be doing all of these things? Or is that just something you had to learn and figure out to do moving forward? I do think people can look at cancer in different ways. And I think cancer was a blessing for me because it forced me to stop living my life the way I was living it. I would have kept going and continued to do what I was doing if I hadn't been diagnosed with breast cancer. So I think society tells women, you have to work 10 times harder. You have to do 10 times more things. Men don't feel that pressure that women feel. I don't believe we, we want to be the best mothers. We want to be the best, everything to everybody. And we want to prove we're successful. And I, I, this is the irony of it all. My husband decided to leave his job after I was diagnosed and had my, I think it was May of 2018, he left his job. Every single person, especially the men, assumed that my husband got some big payoff from his job, which allowed him to be able to leave. No one made any connection to the fact that I had literally built a preschool from ground zero and grew it to two preschools with two buildings and a mediation practice. No one thought my contribution amounted to anything. And that's our society in a nutshell. I, I'm just the woman. They thought I was just piddling around with some preschool and that was that. And, and that is, my husband and I laugh about that. Like no one no one knows, no one, no one assumes, no one thinks that women are capable of all the things that we're capable of. Yeah. As an ally to women, that's what I'm working on is pushing back on men with those thoughts and trying to educate myself because I still find myself so ignorant about all these things too. How did you get to this point? Back me way up to kind of your career path and maybe even starting at college of where you got to the point where you could be a lawyer and, and run successful businesses. How, how, where did that come from that drive? And then also how did you get there kind of logistically? Sure. I, the, a big thing for me, which could be what it is for a lot of women too, is I was told I couldn't be a lawyer. It was a high school boyfriend's family. They said I couldn't be a lawyer because I was too nice, which I don't know that word usually isn't <laughs> used to describe me that much, but um but I was too nice. And that really pissed me off because I didn't, I don't, I don't like people telling me I can't do something. So from a pretty young age, once someone said I couldn't do something, I had to do it. I just had to prove them wrong, I guess. 
And so I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison, political science degree, ended up, um, this is actually really interesting. I had an undiagnosed learning disability and ADHD. I was diagnosed with a learning disability after college when I was trying to take the LSAT and ended up bombing the LSAT until I was diagnosed. Once I received accommodations for the LSAT, I actually went from 25th percentile to 85th percentile. And that allowed me to go to law school in Minnesota. And, um, oh yeah, sorry. You're fine. Um, well, I just want to jump in real quick and ask, because I think people who don't have ADHD still see it as something that's not real. It's made up. I'm hearing now more about adult ADHD. Mm -hmm. What is that? Explain that to people who wouldn't understand it, kind of how that did impact you. What kind of accommodations made that big change too? Absolutely. So initially I was diagnosed with a learning disability, which was reading, reading, and reading comprehension. And that when I got accommodations that actually um, helped because I got extra time. And that was really just me not being able to read and process fast enough. So on essay exams, you, you have a little bit more of a capability to read, process, and write down what you're thinking. On multiple choice, your brain is trying to keep up with the question. And then what happens is you read the question, you go to your four answers or five, and you're supposed to pick one, but then you've, you've lost your focus and your ability. And so then you have to go back and read the question again. And, and it, it takes too much time to go back and forth. And so being having a learning disability combined with ADHD, if I had more time, I could make it work. But then in, um, so I guess I'm jumping a little bit after um, I was accommodated for the LSAT and law school. And then when I moved to Colorado, so I practiced law in Minnesota from um, when I graduated, I got a fellowship, Equal Justice Works Fellowship, and I worked at Legal Aid in Minneapolis. And then when I moved to Colorado in 2003, I was not accommodated. They didn't give me an accommodation in Colorado. They said no. So at that point, I started the I started Baby Power, and then that turned into Creative Learning Preschool. So I did seven years of that. Felt like I wanted to go back to law. And um, the other reason why is because I didn't have a director certificate. So I had to hire a director anyways for the preschool. And I thought, you know what, while I'm managing at a higher level, the preschool, I want to go back and, and practice law. Because I was not accommodated, I went back and did further testing and realized I had ADHD. So I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until 2010. Um, then I had to actually take they want to accommodate me. So I had to take Adderall and Adderall helped me so much for studying and for taking the exam that I was able to pass it on the first, the first time in, in Colorado. So, um, it, it, it's kind of a long <laughs> journey, but in the end that also what I explained about how the testing works, it's the same with the learning disability and the ADHD, but probably really exponentially harder to have both but if I could get either the time or the Adderall like I could it could help me so that I could actually do well on those tests yeah I've heard the medication described as kind of glasses for your brain and that was a, a good analogy for me to kind of understand that and I think that unless you go through it which I'm sure is true of cancer too the lack of empathy from the world is just or awareness is is just is 
is wild to me that people don't get that. And then I, I say that, but I, I feel the same in so many different situations. You're just so unaware if you don't go through it. And on that, that um, thread, going through it. So you're now graduating college and or, or law school, and then you're starting a business. Did you have previous entrepreneurial experience or how did you do, how, how did you decide that I'm going to open this business, this preschool? How did you, how, what was that process like? Yeah. So in 2003, when we moved to Colorado, I worked at Denver CASA, uh, which is court appointed special advocates for abused and neglected children. And I was a program director. And then at that point, um, I realized I was going to make zero dollars after paying childcare for two children. And so we, um, I was on bed rest with my second and, um, I decided to start a business in Stapleton. It was Stapleton at the time, um, for families, for children. So it was a mom's morning out at that point. Um, I, I did want to take the bar exam and practice law, but because I couldn't get accommodated and I was pregnant, I would have, I couldn't take any medication or do anything. So I had to put all of that on hold, which like I said, seven years later, I came back to it. Um, so we decided to start a family friendly business. There was nothing in Stapleton at the time. And, and it started as a, it started as a mommy and me program or parent, you know, and child program. And then what we realized is parents really wanted to drop their children off and then move to a, a mom's morning out. And then it moved to programming like preschool. And we started with one classroom. And then over time, we built up to two classrooms and then, you know, kept going. Oh, Did and then to, to go back to your other question, I had no business experience at all. I just, I had the drive. So. Which so often is, is all it takes. When you're doing that, did you have mentors that helped you? Were you talking to other people who were running similar businesses? Were you just figuring it out for yourself? How, how did you learn about the business part of it? It really, the biggest thing I could say to anyone who wants to start a business is don't go down with the ship. I mean, things don't work. It, we were, you know, breaking even after nine months, but then we weren't going to make any money ever at that business originally. So I had to reinvent it. And people need to learn that you have to be willing and open to failing fast, to learning what's working, to changing a business model, to trying new things. When people, I saw so many people start businesses when I did and fail, they literally closed their businesses and they either weren't willing or able to change their business model to make it successful. And that is a thing that I learned early on. And I learned through mistakes I made and through, you know, trying different things is that some things will work and some things won't. And you just have to be willing to to try and to change and to adapt. And, you know, I, my biggest thing is don't go down with the ship. So then you're now have your preschools open. You are passing the, the bar here in Colorado. Then talk to me a little about your law career then here and what you focused on. Yeah. So I focused on family law and uh, I always knew I wanted to mediate. So I knew I had to litigate for a little bit. Um, Attorneys in general, especially male attorneys that are of a certain age, are very condescending to women. And I look young. I've always looked younger than I 
M is I have a baby face. And so um, I knew I had to have a certain amount of litigation experience in order to be taken seriously by the attorneys that I'm mediating for. So I definitely, um, I, I, I worked for two smaller female run law firms and then went on my own about two or three years in. And at that point, I, I really just switched my practice over to mediating full time. And yeah, um, mediate. This will prove that you know the male female paradox here, and, and and that women are better. Mediation versus litigation. I think I know what they are, but can you explain that to me real quick? Absolutely. So obviously, so litigation is when you're just representing people in court and you're you're negotiating on behalf of one party and representing them in court. In mediation, I'm the neutral. So I'm the the third. So it could be two people without attorneys or two people with attorneys. And I'm the one that know I know the law and I understand it. Um, that's not 100% required, but I felt it was necessary. And I try and guide people to their own resolution. So I help them get to a compromise position. So it does require that everyone have a buy-in and say, you know what, um, Rachel's not biased, Rachel cares, Rachel's trying to help us, you know, they have to believe that about me. And then I can help them reach a resolution to their problem or issues. And it's custody, it's a divorce, it's, you know, I've done it all, so. Which are really like, you're dealing with people in really stressful situations. So you're talking about that stress as you, you it's really important work, but that's, also very stressful work that and that's where you um chose to go with that from the did your business experience and the stress that you'd have running the businesses did that help are you now looking back and reflecting on your career happy that you didn't practice law for those first years and experience something else before you went into the field oh yeah when i what i realized early on um uh, was ego is a huge part of ego is a huge part of law and i i hate to say that but a lot of attorneys have an ego, right? And so when I went to, um, when I started Baby Power and I would do birthday parties. So I would run a birthday party on a weekend for, for families. And a lot of times people just assumed I was a mom getting out and, um, you know, yay you, you get to go run a birthday party for an hour and get paid, you know, $15 an hour or something, maybe not even that. And so people made a lot of assumptions about me. The minute they found out I was also an attorney, wow, they're, they're, that changed. The minute they found out I own the business, my God. So I'm an attorney who owns a business and all of a sudden they're treating me differently. And so what helped me in all of that was realizing that I, how I am treated, how other people are treated, a lot of it depends on the titles that we have. And um, that actually was huge. So when I started practicing later and then mediating, I have all that experience and knowledge and I can use it in a way to hopefully relate, relate to people. Yeah, that's a personal struggle with me is I love hearing about people's careers and learning about them. And we do a lot of that on podcasts. We've also had a lot of women on this podcast already that have transitioned from one career to another and often from a career 
that is really respected by the world to one that that isn't as much or people don't know what it is. And that's such an interesting thing for me to reflect on. And I use the example of my father was a bus driver for RTD and just recently retired. And like a lack of respect for that position, which is such an important position for society um, and a difficult thing to do to drive the bus on Colfax is so hard. And, and yet it's so not respected. And, and I, I see that in myself too, is when you do hear about someone's um, profession, then it does change your view in their mind, no matter what they're currently doing. Um, and it also, unfortunately, is used for a marketing right tool. Is if people know you did this, then they're going to interact with you another way and respect you and your whatever your current um, business is. And so that's a it's a tricky balance, I think. But it's something I'm personally just working on to try to make sure that I don't define people by that, and that I realize that every job certainly has value, and and um, every person has value in their own ways. Um, do you see yourself? in that position where you're now leading with that kind of thing to get it out of the way? Or how do you, do you like to surprise them later? How, how does that work with both your, with your baby face, but also with kind of your professional journey? Yeah, I found, it's interesting. I would be in mediation sometimes and someone would try to put me in a spot, in a position, and I just wouldn't take it anymore. Like the older I got, the more I would I would be like, well, I, you know, I run a successful business over here. I have this over here. I have that over here. So if you want to keep talking to me like I'm an idiot, you can, but just know that, you know, it's not going to, you're not going to get anywhere. Like, I'm not going to, not going to do that. I won't. And, and that, but I'm lucky. Like, I'm so lucky that I can actually look at someone and say, don't mess with me. I've done this, I've done that, I've done, and think, I think of women who don't have that ability and that makes me really sad. It doesn't, like, it, it just makes me sad that women will get put down a lot of the time because of circumstances and they don't have the ability that I have had to be able to shut someone down, so. This made me think of just to the lack of respect for mothers in our society and all mm -hmm. the work that you're doing 24 hours in the day and, and not paid for or respected um, and expected to do. Um, and it also makes me think of just being born a, a white American male. I came out of the womb being told I could do anything and yeah. seeing myself everywhere. And I, I see that with the, the women that I work with, just the lack of confidence that they have versus the confidence that I have. And which is not earned. Like it's it's wild to me that I really think I could be in any situation. And so um, yeah, that that's interesting. Then good job for you shutting them down. And then we have to work towards a way where those questions aren't asked or pushed in that way, but also just that women, and that's I guess one of the things I want to do with this podcast for women to see that in themselves is you are a badass just existing in this world with all the pressure that's on you. From a relationship standpoint and just a personal knowledge standpoint, I've got a wonderful relationship with my wife, but um, there's still things that we disagree on, obviously. In general, when you're giving people advice in these situations and mediation and starting points, if everything were to go really well and be good and work out well, kind of what general advice do you give to, to I guess, couples in those situations? Sure. Put the kids first. Always put the kids first. Get over yourself. Like you are not the one that is supposed to be focused on in this. You should be focusing on what is best for your children and you shouldn't put what you think is best for your children on your children. You literally have to separate yourself and your own wants um, and desires from what is best for your children. 
So that is what people struggled with the most. The most successful mediations were when people stopped focusing on their own wants and needs and really truly focused on what was best for their children. Which is, that that's, sounds so easy and it's so interesting to me as I age that, first of all, mentally I never feel older. And I always think of, and I, when I, I know. have young, younger, younger people <laughs> in my life, I think of, whoa, that, that makes me old if they're this age. Um, but I also am so shocked when I look at people that are even older than me, and I'm currently 42 as we record this. And, and when I look to older generations and see how they still get so impacted by other people's thoughts and other people's gossip, whatever it is, it's always fascinating to me how you never lose those feelings. And so it is interesting how ego does enter into those situations and how you're, you're exactly right. We're, we're taught as a society kind of win, win, win. And yep. when that, that's a loss to the kids, that's, that's really tough. Um, so then with that um, and your cancer diagnosis, and then tell me about the, your work with your pillow and that entrepreneurial endeavor. Yeah. So after I was uh, diagnosed and then had my double mastectomy, I was not able to sleep. Uh, like most people, it was uncomfortable. I couldn't, they say, raise your upper body. So have a wedge. But then when you're on the wedge, you kind of slide off the wedge because you're not held in place by anything. Your neck, neck gets a kink in it. You're, you're just not comfortable. So I, I started buying pillows and I created a system to help me sleep. And I absolutely loved it. It was, I called it a life, my life raft. And I would <laughs> lay in it. And I had so many surgeries. I used it for recovery from every surgery. And I, um, I would read in it. I'd rest in it. I'd sleep in it. It was amazing. And what happened is after I used it, I knew of someone else going through breast cancer. So I started lending out my pillow system to other people and people were like, oh my God, this is incredible. I can sleep. And so it evolved and we decided to actually make it even better, adjust it a little more and then make it available for people. You are obviously such a busy person. You're dealing with ADHD at the time as well. After you're getting these surgeries and while you're laying in your, your pillow system, like how did you deal with being a patient? You don't sound like you'd be a good patient from that perspective because you're, you're always going no. obviously impactful. You had small kids or young kids at the time and or, or kids at the time you're dealing with things. How did you deal with the mental side of, of being in your bed and having to be that way? Well, that's when my brain works. Anyone who knows me knows my brain never stops. I I have sworn this is my last business I'm ever going to do. And people have called me on that and said, there's no way. Um, so I, I, I did a lot of reading. I did meditating. I, I really tried to focus on changing my life so that I wouldn't be in this position again. And so work-life balance became very important to me. My husband, you know, quit his corporate job and started running the preschools. And I just focused on mediation at that point. The businesses started a couple years, or not the businesses, the sleep again pillow business started a couple years later. So I had time to think about that. And the way I always know I'm supposed to start a business is when an idea doesn't leave me. And this was such a passion project and helping women sleep and heal after surgery was so important to me 
that I, I knew I had to do that business. I knew it. And then once that business started taking more time and energy, uh, just uh, probably nine months ago, I, I decided to take a break from mediating. So I told everyone I was on sabbatical and then I have never gone back since my sabbatical. I still get requests and I am still on sabbatical. <laughs> so I, I think I'm just going to focus my energy on, on the pillows and not, not mediate at this point. So I am currently listening on tape to a um, book called Build by Tony Fidel, who he was the, worked with Apple before, but was the founder of Nest and just, a, I think, an amazing book. And um, kind of advice to entrepreneurs going through the different steps. And that was one of the things is how do you know when you have an idea that it should be an actual business? And one of his advice, one of the pieces of advice he gives is just sit on it. And if it does not leave yeah. your brain, um, yep. then it is one. One of the things that I have a really hard time with is when you do find your passion or a passion, I, you can't shut your brain off to it. So that's something I'm struggling with and have been struggling with for the last two and a half years since we've been doing Mama Bird interviews, which is my passion. I can't turn it off. And so I'm with my family and I'm thinking about it. I'm with my wife and I'm thinking about it. And I don't want that all the way. However, I see it as being so important. You're dealing with helping people who are going through this incredibly difficult time. And you have a product that you obviously believe in and made a, a huge change in your life. So you're 100% in. How are you able to, or, or even, even if it's done poorly, how do you try to turn your brain off on things? It takes time and practice. I, I think that meditation is really important and having the ability to, to work on quieting your brain. Anyone with ADHD or ADD can, you know, can tell you that it's very hard. It's very hard to sleep. It's very hard to not think about it, to not, you know, talk about it. Um, luckily I have a very understanding husband and family, but I get excited. And when I get excited, I want to talk about it. And when I want to talk about it, then everyone needs to talk about it. And so, um, it, it takes time. It takes practice. It's not easy. I mean, it's not easy to quiet your brain when you've got all these thoughts going around. So you just have to work on it. One of the things he recommends in the book, which I'm, I'm not good at yet, is putting everything on paper. So your tasks on paper, your ideas on paper, and getting them out of your brain in that capacity. So you know you won't forget them. I do notes on my phone. What I do really do well is audio recordings on my phone in that capacity. We don't have a good system to kind of get it out and you know come back to it at this time or whatever. Another one of his recommendations is go into business with someone else. So have a partner. So there's something um, there too. And it sounds like you're doing that with your husband and your, your preschool business, but you do have a partner with this business, correct? Yes. Kate Devlin. And she's amazing. And she worked with Boppy and uh, just had this amazing background when it came to, um, to kind of the pillow business. And so I sought her out and, she agreed. We originally had three three partners, um, and uh, the third partner um, was with us for about a year, and then left to go do something else. But um, but yeah, Kate is amazing, and she's great, and we are able to kind of tag team and able to um, kind of give each other reprieve and talk about things. And yeah, she's amazing. With something like this and a product about this, I don't know how you began with a physical product. So you made these pillows set up in your house. <laughs> did you 
And then how do you get from that point to an actual physical product? I'm sure there's prototypes where you're getting them produced. I'd love to know about kind of the, that side of the business. How did you take it first, the design part to, to firm up the design and, and get it to be kind of one, one cohesive product? Yeah. So what happened is I had the product, I bought pillows off Amazon, right? And I was able to take those and make them work. But when I, we, uh, Meet Say, who was our third partner at the time, she is also a breast cancer survivor. And she and I worked together and she could sew. So we were able to take the pillows, adjust them, make some changes. And then once we had a prototype, um, she actually, she was an architect. So she has the CAD program and all of that. She could make the plans and, and do the design and have all the measurements and everything. And then we sent that to the manufacturer and they made a prototype, a sample that they sent back to us. We approved it. And then we kept that sample and then they started producing them. So yeah, and now we're actually moving production to the United States. Um, so we have a couple, um, they're called PIAs. Uh, we have 400 in each order. And we've done multiple of those. And we have one that's going to be delivered in about a week. And then another one that we will finish up in December, January. And once those pillows are all done and sold, then we are moving production to the United States. Um, uh, there's a manufacturer in Texas that we'll, we'll be working with. So, so yeah. The learning curve on this must have just been so steep, but it's something that I think is fascinating and, and challenging in a really good way. Did everything take way longer? Has it always taken way longer than you expected? Absolutely. And it's hard. It's a hard business. I'm not going to lie. Service industry is actually a lot easier for me than any product business would or could be. I mean, people um, think our pillows are expensive and, and I don't disagree, but the cost to make the pillows and the cost to deliver the pillow, uh, there's so many things about the business that are hard to explain to people. It's just a lot harder. It's a lot more difficult than I could have ever imagined. And everything has taken so much longer in so many ways. And uh, yeah, I would, I think I would do a service business, you know, 10 times, if it weren't for the passion part of this project, I would do a service business 10 times over doing a product, you know, business. Yeah, I think it's interesting. People's relationship with money is fascinating to me. The, the, the work that we do, again, is we're doing interviewing. And the, the goal was originally to interview like your parents and grandparents for posterity, for the future when they're not there anymore. And that's a, a tricky sell to begin with because they, they don't necessarily yes. want to do that or ask their parents to do it. And then it's yeah. also tricky because we're charging $333 for something that you could do for yourself. And yep. so you're kind of in that same age. You can make your own pillow, floating pillow, whatever you said. But the other part of it that I just, it's so obvious to me and in, 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 I guess, certain situations, because I'm sure I'm this way with other people's products in different ways, but that, that the peace of mind of it, the, the amount of money you're spending on your overall cancer journey to begin with, it's such a drop in the bucket, your comfort for whatever night, your amount of sleep that helps your body regenerate, all these different things that are so obvious to you, it's a tricky, tricky sale in that capacity. Are there other people that are doing similar businesses to this? Do you have direct competition in, in this capacity? No, it's funny, maybe about 
eight months ago, we had someone approach us and say, I think, you know, you've infringed on my patent and we, and we do, we are patent pending. Um, and our attorney looked it over and they're like, no, you're not. And not only that, but I think he's infringing on your, on your patent. Um, there's just not a lot out there that does what we do. There are other pillows, but they look different. And I think that that's why the business never left my brain was because there really isn't anything else out there that is similar. And, you know, and I, I, like I said, I get the cost of going through cancer and the cost of the pillows, but they're five pillows, they're large pillows. There's so much, and you can use them in so many different ways. Um, we have people that use our pillows for every type of surgery, heart surgery, uh, back surgery, um, anything, you know, with plastic, you know, or cosmetic surgery, um, the breast reconstruction, double mastectomy. I mean, you name it. Um, we've had facelift people use our surgery, you know, everyone. So if any time a doctor tells you, you have to lay on your back and you have to sleep on your back, who sleeps on their back? Usually <laughs> like almost no one. So people need it to get rest and recover. And so that that's been probably the most eye-opening part about it is how many people the pillows really do help. And I'm sure that expands all the time. And I've seen that with our product too, is it works for so many different things. Um, have you built relationships then with people in different capacities? I'm sure cancer is, there's different communities that you could be involved in, but yeah. the, I don't know what communities that would be hospitals and things like that. Are you trying to work with people? I guess what, what connections would be most helpful for you to make in this industry? Yeah. So we've learned a lot of things the hard way, which, you know, every business is, is that way. And so what we've learned is that we really need to focus on the medical side of this, meaning the ability for this to help people, um, medically. And what we've also realized that doctors are very busy and they just don't have the time or energy to really focus. So we make inroads where we don't even realize we're going to make them. And so like, for example, someone posted on social media saying, my nurse recommended this pillow and blah, blah, blah. I don't know who the nurse was. So, you know, I don't, I mean, we try to make those relationships and we try to have it be um, something where we can continue to kind of have that connection. But sometimes the word spreads and people recommend it to other people and we just aren't sure where it's been or where it's going. And um, we are, we're working, you know, as much as we can with the medical field though. How about insurance? Is there any, I mean, people, first of all, people spend a ton on their beds. So I know that yeah. that's certainly a thing, but how do, how about like insurance? Is there any capacity or way to get into that field? That's gotta be a very complex. Too. It is. Um, we are FSA and HSA covered, uh, officially, and um, so people can use their FSA card, their HSA card. And we were working to get our own, it's called a hip pick code and for insurance reimbursement. And I think at this point, the, the new manufacturer we're gonna use is um, FDA registered. And so we're working with a consultant and she's helping us kind of make inroads in terms of Mayo Clinic and um, different, options like FSA store and that so that we can increase our distribution. But in terms of insurance coverage, it is complicated, especially with, I think it's medic, 
Medicaid coverage and reimbursements and all that. So we're processing, we're trying to figure out our options and what to do. It's a lot more intense than I anticipated, but we're trying. I'm sure. And at the start of this conversation, you said you're trying to work on your balance, your work-life balance. How are you able to do that? Has this move to be doing this more full-time been beneficial for that? Yeah, I I don't do the preschool. My husband does the preschool. I don't mediate. I literally just do the pillows now. And um, our youngest child just went to college. So um, there is a lot more balance, a lot more balance than there used to be. I mean, you never stop worrying about your children. So that's there. But um, but everything is much, much better now much better. I take a lot, I take a lot of time for myself now, take care of myself. So good, good for you. Well, earlier in the conversation too, you told me that you'll do things when people will tell you you can't do them. So I will yeah. tell you, there's no way you're going to be able to find that work-life balance. So you can, <laughs> you can thank you. Thank you. you. Can, you can so there's, I, I don't think there's any chance. Never, never, ever. No way. Although, <laughs> although I do, although I do agree, if you're going to start more businesses. So I don't think that you're done. I don't, I'm with your friend on that. One. Um, my, my, my final thing is something I typically start out with is, um, this is called the Badass Woman of Central Park. How do you feel on the badass meter? Do you consider yourself a badass? Yes, I do. And I want my children, my daughters to be too. I want them to do everything and anything that they set their minds to. I want them to just kick ass in life. So yeah, I, I, I was called... I can, we've, we've been swearing a little bit, so I can probably, <laughs> I was called the, my nickname when I was growing up was shit starter or shit disturber. You can pick whichever one. And that was what my mom called me. So I think I came, I must've come out of the womb, a little bit of trouble, you know, a little bit of, um, I'm going to, I'm going to just do things my way. Um, so yeah, that, I think that's, the goal, do things your way, you know, really just challenge yourself and go, you know, kick ass. So 